0: Today's week two of our Christmas series, and um, somehow I find myself still talking about prophecy, even though we're not in Revelation. Um, uh, It's an interesting topic around this time of year. Um, There's more than meets the eye in the texts that we read about the nativity story, the story of Jesus' birth. And um, we've been in this series that we started last week called The Coming King. Uh, today we will be in the book of Isaiah. If you want to go ahead and find that in your Bible, you can. But the title of my message is this, The Promise of His Presence. The Promise of His Presence. Um, I want to teach you, give you some understanding and a little education this morning. It's a reminder for most of you, but it might be new to some of us. I wanted to remind you of this. Whenever you come across biblical prophecy that's in God's Word, there's always two applications. There's always two ways to look at that prophecy. I say always, I should probably say most times. So let me give it to you like this. When the prophets prophesied, they prophesied something that had a meaning for now in the day that they were living in, the person they were speaking to, or the people. But there's also, in many cases, a not-yet aspect. It's kind of like they were nearsighted and far-sighted at the same time because they were seeing beyond that moment. God was allowing them to speak words that mean something beyond just that moment. So last week, we talked about Balaam's prophecies to King Balak, Who was nervous about the Israelites moving in as his neighbor. And he wanted them to be cursed. And here Balaam shows up and can't do anything but bless them. Because the God of Israel won't allow him to speak a curse towards those people. He says something amazing during that moment. He's looking at the people of Israel from a mountaintop with King Balak. And he says, I see him but not near Uh, He is coming in the future and he talks about the coming king. There's a a current representation there right then and there because Balak receives the prophecies and then says, you know what? I'm not going to stand against these people. If God's done such a strange set of events around this and I've told him to do something four times and he's done the opposite four times, I better not take up my sword against these people because God's on their side. That's amazing when you think about it. There was a now implication, but there was also a not yet aspect to it. So I think it's important for us to realize, even when we read in Isaiah today, there would be an immediate uh, playing out of some of the details of Isaiah's prophecy. But there's also something further in the future from Isaiah, which is now our past. But by God, it is... In our future as well. The king is coming. He did not just arrive. He is no longer a babe. Or a baby. He has come. He has left. He, he did his job. He committed to us his life. And now he is soon to return again. So I think it's important that we understand. As we grow in our faith. Um, This is something that might help you when you're talking to somebody who believes in some other God or some other religion. You ought to know this. There are no prophecies that have ever alerted the world to the birth of Muhammad, the prophet from Islam. Not a single one. Not in their Islamic prophecies or things that they said were prophesied. There's not a single one. The leader of Mormonism, the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, there were no prophecies about him coming, his birth, his life, the details of his life. About Charles Russell, who's the Jehovah's Witness. Now, I'm mentioning these things, and today's not a day to talk about cults and other religions. But Mormons and Jehovah's Witness are not true believers in the same Jesus you and I understand and know from Scripture, that's important for you to realize that. But there were no prophecies given even about the founder of Buddhism. So no other founder of any other religion has this that they can hold as a banner and say over hundreds of years right. there were repeated things spoken in a divine way to help highlight a, detail, a detailed event that would come in the future. It's amazing. The city, the place, all of those things were mentioned years before Jesus ever came. So, I think that alone should cement your faith in the God of the Bible. Amen? That is one of the anchors to which we hold. So, many prophecies were perfectly fulfilled by the birth, the life, and the death of Jesus. And these were not lucky guesses made by a prophet named Isaiah. Or made by some guy named... Uh, Balaam. It's not just that those things occurred by just sheer luck. It's that God divinely spoke through men and women of old in order to lead the people to have hope and to recognize there is a hope on the horizon. I think that's still important for you and I today. Conservatively speaking, there are over there are at least at least. 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his birth, life, and death from the Old Testament. That's a conservative number. I found one scholar that pinpointed, listen to me, 574 occurrences in the Old Testament that point to, describe, or reference the Messiah. This, The book you hold in your hand, I will not use the word magic... But it has supernatural origin, and it has supernatural power in your life today. If God cared that much to arrange that many details in that many people's lives, then don't sit and sulk in prayer, believing a lie that God has left you and doesn't care. Amen? He does. He's on the throne, and He's coming back. Amen? This is good news for you and I. But I think at, you, at Christmas time, you and I get caught up in all this busyness. Um, I remember being a kid and uh, just waiting for the day. I mean, how many of you remember childhood Christmas? Just raise your hand. Most of us not old enough or senile enough yet to have forgotten the details, right? I remember I remember dying to wake up. I remember staying up late because I was trying to hear my dad tinker out in the garage as he's building something. And I knew it wasn't Santa anymore and that kind of thing. I, I remember with anticipation. I remember being the bad, rebellious child that my mom left at a certain age. She still thinks I'm good. <laughs> Um, but at a certain age, my brother and I went through every closet in that house during Christmas. And we took a little blade and we sliced tape. And we... Don't listen to this, okay? We, we peeked in boxes. We, we did naughty things. And we should have been on the naughty list. But I remember the anticipation of what that felt like. And I think uh, one of the things that really perturbed me, is a good way to put this angered me, was all of that led up to Christmas morning where we would have a breakfast. I would be scarfing down my food like a soldier at war. Okay. We are ready. Okay, let's do it. And then we'd sit on the couch and my dad would, the slowest he's ever spoken in his life, would say, now it's time for us to read the Christmas story. Ah, come on, Dad, we know the story. Like, okay, we've been at this for a while now, okay? We've gone to church every Sunday in December. We've gone to these other events. We know the details. Let's get to the good stuff. But my dad recognized something, which I now practice with my children, and they love me for it. And that is this. Christmas isn't about what you get or what you give it is truly about what we have received, received in the past tense. It's about Jesus and the promise of God's presence with us. So we're going to be in the book of Isaiah today, but I want to tell you about Isaiah just briefly, just tell you this. That he lived somewhere between seven to 800 years before Jesus arrived. So you should know that ahead of time because God was doing something incredible in Isaiah's day that would help bring some light to what would occur at the birth of Jesus. Um, Go with me to Isaiah chapter 7, and we'll be in uh, chapter 7 just for one verse today. Um, I want you to recognize, though, I don't want you to think your pastor is taking these verses out of context. They are proven historically to be messianic prophecies, uh, there's more detail in the whole chapter of Isaiah chapter 7, and you should read chapter 6 through 11, really, and there's a bunch of little nuggets there that lead to other things. It's not just for Isaiah's day, but I'll read this one verse today, which you might be familiar with in verse 14 of chapter 7. It says this, the Lord himself will give you a sign. I want you to understand Isaiah is talking. He's had an audience with the king. And the king basically trying to be, uh, I would say, falsely humble. Trying to say, well, I won't ask for a sign or a miracle from God about the details of what's going on in their life in that time. And then Isaiah pops in with this statement and says, if you won't ask for a sign... I will give you a sign, God says. And he says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. In many of the versions of the Bible, there might be a parenthetical statement that says, Emmanuel means God with us. Truly, God residing with us. So then, fast forward 700 or so years to the life of Matthew, a follower of Jesus, and he somehow connects this moment in Isaiah's prophecy to the birth of Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. It says this, All this took place to fulfill, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. When God speaks something, He intends it to happen. Amen? Amen? When he says, when he gives a promise in the word of God, whether it was for them then or for us now, and we take it for both, uh, we need to understand God is not a liar. He does not go back on his word. I apologized to a tiny child this last week because I made a promise to her. She's not related to me. And I made a promise and I said, I promise you next time you see me, I will have. And then I, I showed up and I didn't have. I had to apologize. I consider myself a good guy most days, but I went back on my word. All of us have fallen short. Every single one of us. Not just your bad, you know, image in your mind of a parent that left or forsook your spouse or whatever. Any of those crazy details. All of us, no matter how good we think we are, have fallen short of God's standard. His standard is perfect. And he doesn't go back on his word. You better thank God that he doesn't go back on his word. So Matthew writes in the story of Jesus' birth that all of these things took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from Isaiah in verse 23 of Matthew 1. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son And they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is significant. This is more than you can even imagine. In the Old Testament, you need to understand that God visited people at special times, at special places, and only special people. Regular average ladies named Jessica didn't get visits from the God of heaven. It was for the prophet or for the priest that was in the tabernacle. It was only at a certain event. It was during a certain victory. God shows up and he says something. He wrestles with a man by a riverbank. There are some crazy things that happened, moments in time where we just get a beep, beep, beep. Just a little bit of a tiny glimpse of God's presence with us. But when Jesus was born of Mary and of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that He shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. That's not just God with Mary. That's not just God in Bethlehem. That's God over every city, every nation. That's God over everyone. The Bible says, who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So God came in flesh and He dwells among us during that time that He was physically here. So the promise of God's presence is already fulfilled because Jesus came... But it has yet to be fully fulfilled in the future because we know that he is coming back We are living in the in-between of the beginning and the end of human history And I think it's awesome that God is still with us How many of you have ever felt far from God? Just be honest, it's church, right? I've felt far There's been distance in my relationship with the Lord And you know what i found? I've found, this is uh, anecdotal. This is just purely my experience. Um, I've found that it's always my fault. If I could say it so boldly. That his, the distance in our relationship with God is never on him. He's never responsible for that. We are the ones who distance ourselves from him. Ten times in the Old Testament, and at least once in the New Testament, God says this exact phrase, I will be with you. In fact, Jesus himself says that in the Bible, in the New Testament, during his ministry. And this is just one of many phrases that really communicate the concept of God's presence throughout Scripture. Think about this. This is really awesome. I was thinking this week in the development of this message, and I I came to the, the, the moment where I stopped and I thought, the promise of God's presence didn't just show up somewhere in the middle. It was at the very beginning. Adam and Eve had the presence of God, did they not? They experienced God's real personal approach with them. And then fast forward and we just finished the book of Revelation and you recognize in Revelation chapter 21 His presence is with His people like it has never been before in a real and a physical way. I keep telling you, we're not going to be Cupid floating on a cloud with a harp. We're going to live in eternity and we're going to know what the presence of God is really like. So the Bible is bookended by God's presence. If you really think about it, it can it can really astound you that God, the God of all the heavens and the earth, wants to be with you. You let that sink in for a moment. Not for your husband sitting next to you. Not for your child in the nursery. Not, not, don't think of anybody else. God himself wants to be with you. That really is the promise of Christmas. That God is with us, and we might think in general terms like, yeah, he's with the people, his chosen people, and now I'm one of his people, and we kind of, if I could say it like this, we dumb it down, and then it loses the significance of God wants to be with you, just you. If you were the only one, he would want to be with just you. You, Jesus tells us Himself that God is with us through the Holy Spirit's habitation in a believer's life and in our mind, in our heart, in our life throughout the days that we live. Jesus said these words in John chapter 14. He says this, chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father and He will give you... Listen to me, this is exciting, not just because I studied really well for this message, but because it sunk into my spirit like never before. Jesus was leaving, and he knew he was about to leave, and he said, I don't want you to be alone, the Father will say, because God is with us, he didn't want us to be alone, I've said before that he doesn't want us to be alone because it's like we couldn't be trusted to be left alone. Amen. Okay? But this is there's more to it than just that. He actually wants to be with us. Look at what it says in uh well he continues speaking. He says, "We'll give you another helper." That means the first has already come and is about to leave to be with you. That word is significant forever. Verse 17 even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Another comforter, another entity, another personality of God Would be with us. The Father created the world. And the word was with him in the beginning. While the Spirit hovered over the water. All three. God the Father led his people through the wilderness. And all of their wanderings. And he still is leading people through their wanderings. Amen. But when we have found... This Messiah, the one that we've been told was born in Bethlehem. When that occurs in the heart of a person, 2,000 years past that time, then God says, I will not just be with you. I will live inside of you. It's amazing. He's not just holding our hand that we can let him go, but he's living inside of you as a believer. God is still with us. Romans chapter 8 is interesting. You don't have to turn there this morning. You should read it uh, sometime. Romans is a great, great book. I guess we say that about every book of the Bible, but like it's really good. It's good for new believers, people that are interested in faith. Because Paul talks to the church at Rome, to those believers, and he really lines or lays out the case for how we should walk and follow Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, he says something significant. You've probably heard this phrase before. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither death nor life, angels, demons, nothing has the power to separate you from the love of God. God loves you regardless of what you've done. Somebody needs to listen to me this morning. God loves you regardless of what you have done. Nothing can separate you from His love. But there is one thing that can separate you from His presence. One thing that can prevent His presence from abiding with you and in you. And the Bible is very clear that that thing is called sin. It happened in the Garden of Eden. Their disobedience. Them them following through with the the lie of the enemy. This important moment demonstrated and should still demonstrate to us. That the one thing that separated Adam and Eve from God. And listen to me. From each other. That caused a great divide. Is this thing called sin. So. So. Thousands of years later, from Adam and Eve, and a few thousand since Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection, sin is still separating people from the presence of God. God's original intention was to be with us, and it still is, although we separate ourselves when we drive that wedge in our relationship with God through things like sin. Isaiah says something interesting in Isaiah 59. And you can turn there. We'll have the verse on the screen. Isaiah 59, chapter 59, verse 1 and 2. He says this. And this is interesting to me because just this week I was reading through more of Isaiah. And I realized that I've heard this verse before, but I've never heard the second verse. You know, like I've heard whole messages preached on this. The Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save Or is ear dull that it cannot hear? We use that in prayer. We say there is nothing impossible with God. God's arm is not handicapped, if I could say it like that. It's not drawn back. It's not too short to reach you in your life, in your despair, in your chaos, in your issue. And his ears are not hard of hearing. He doesn't need a hearing aid. He hadn't lost his battery for his hearing aid. There is nothing that he happens that he doesn't know happens. And then verse 2. It says this, but your iniquity, your sin has made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You say, well, pastor, you're stepping on my toes. You're telling me anytime I've ever felt distant from the Lord, it was because of sin in my life. I wasn't there. I don't know. But I can tell you the Bible and the word of God is clear. And Isaiah is speaking years before he ever before Jesus ever arrived and said, God's hand isn't too short and he is not deaf. The reason why you're experiencing distance is because you have made a separation between you and your God. Pastor, how can you preach on sin? It's Christmas. (laughs) Because that's why Jesus came. He came because He loves you and I so much. So by God, literally, do not be shy about the Savior that you worship during this season. If at any other point in the year you could say, I'm introverted, I'm immature in my faith, I don't know enough theology, I'm scared to death to bring up this conversation with others. Bring it up now. Talk about it. Be like my crazy dad who made me read the Christmas story and made me read the Christmas story. And there was one Christmas, I read it in Matthew, and then he's we're thinking it's Christmas presents time, and then he says to my brother, why don't you read Mark's version or Luke's version? And we're like, oh my goodness, it's going to take all day. If there's any other time that's given and appointed for us as believers to share our faith, It's this time and every year we're afforded with this opportunity to tell people that there's hope on the horizon. That there's a God who loves you enough that he sent his only begotten son in order to live on this planet. And really when you think about it, no other religion espouses that belief either. You've got to please their God You've got to work, work, work. You've got to do all of these things to earn. In fact, when my parents served as missionaries in India, I remember hearing stories about how these uh, underprivileged and poor mothers would be pregnant and then they'd have their children and they would take their own milk that deservingly should have went to their child and went down to the street temple and poured it out before a deity, before a statue. And their own children starved because they were trying to appease a God. You don't serve that kind of God. This is good news. Amen. It's great news. It's great news that God is with us. And more than that, that he is with you. You and I individually. So the only way that we uh, experience the separation from The presence of God is based on scriptural evidence is because of our iniquity that builds or um, drives a wedge, builds a large abyss, a divide between us and God. But God in himself, in his goodness, in his righteousness, in his love, in his mercy towards you, sent the one thing that would be able to bridge that gap. And bring us back to his presence. And that was his son. So we should strive, I think, you and I as believers, and I pray that everybody here is a believer. If you're not, today is the day that you can become a believer because there is a hope that is for your soul that doesn't determine, that isn't based on your circumstances or the world around you. It's a hope that can be an anchor for you regardless of what happens in this life because God loves you so much, He wants you as His own. But it's not just on special occasions like Christmas that we should think about the presence of God or strive to enter into his presence. I love the Psalms. It's a great uplifting, mostly, um, although there are some crazy ones in there. There's most, 90%, I would say, that's just anecdotal, um, would be praiseworthy, exciting, glorifying God, good stuff. We get a lot of our worship songs from the Psalms. I love reading the Psalms. And I love how it says this repeatedly, over and over in different ways. But it says, enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. In other words, make an effort to get into His presence. Do some soul searching. You say, well, I don't think I have any sin in my life, Pastor. I think I'm good. Well, you might... (laughs) If you just give yourself a second and close your eyes and think about what happened last week, you might. There might be something. And so when we are to come into God's presence, I thought about it this morning. I don't know if y'all had a house that went out of power today. The Pedans did. They live in close to the church. Our house went out uh, as well. The church went out. And I started getting these frantic text messages. And I'm like, I'm going to Walmart to buy candles. Bless God, today's candlelight service. It's acoustic Andrew's got this with his acoustic guitar. We got this. We can handle it. Why? Because there's something important. Not because I had to share this message or because I had to be here or you had to be here. But because we get to be in the presence of our great God together. It's not about the building or the four walls. It's about togetherness, the family of God worshiping him. And so we've got to lay aside those things. I love how Paul says that. Lay aside the thing that easily weighs you down, throw it off and come into his presence. Reunite with him. Uh, I would stop and sing that song reunited and it feels so good, but I'm not sure it's appropriate. We're going to move on. Look at what else Isaiah says about this coming king. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Sure, this meant something in Isaiah's day. There was hope on the horizon. The exile would be over. God would bring His people back to their place, to their home. There was something significant then and there. But by God, there's something good for you and I to understand. Because you and I, I don't know if you've paid attention lately, but we live in a dark world with ever-increasing darkness all the time. Steeped in deep darkness, yet God, in His grace, has sought out and has surely delivered away, given us a remedy, something that can eradicate the darkness, and that's the light of His own Son, Jesus. Words in the New Testament during His ministry: "I am the light of the world." He is the light that has shown in the darkness. He's the light that still shines and can shine in your darkness or the chaos that you and I experience. Chapter 9 of Isaiah, go to verse 6. Famous passage that we know really well. Verse 6 and 7, it says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son has been given. And the government shall be on his shoulders, or upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This might sound really elementary and super simple to your your mind this morning, but let me just say this. My wife teaches. She's a teacher. We've got other teachers in this room. I don't remember much from school, but I can tell you that proper nouns get a capital, (laughs) right? That's, I mean, they're capitalized, right? So in the original text, this is what's really amazing. This isn't somebody in a room with a bunch of, Bible nerds in the 60s, in the 1960s, that decided we should go back through here and put capital W, because this obviously is about God. No, the original text is actual proper names that involve God himself. And it says that God will be a son. This was... This would have rattled the cage and rattled the mind of those who lived in Isaiah's day. Saying, what are you talking about? For unto us a child is born and the government's going to be on his shoulders and he's going to be called these proper titles. What? How is it possible that he's a... Y'all aren't paying attention. How is it possible that he's a son and a father in the same verse? What? What has happened? It would have been something that caused them to dive deep into understanding that our great God is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Look at verse 7. It says this, Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. If I could paraphrase that by God's grace. His kingdom keeps expanding, and there's no stopping it on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And it closes by saying, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That means God's excited about accomplishing this work that he set out to do. So who can be called a wonderful counselor If their presence isn't experienced by the one who's receiving the counsel. Who can be considered a mighty God? Only a God who could destroy all enemies. Amen. And rescue his people at the same time. What divine being could be called everlasting father? Using... listen. If you read the Bible too fast because you're late for work, you don't have time to digest it. I don't know if you've ever had, anybody ever had heartburn in here? (laughs) Come on, raise your hand. It's like that weird, like the Italians in New Jersey call it agita. Okay? I got agita from all that sauce I ate. That's what they would say. Talking about tomatoes and the acidity of it. Listen to me. If you don't take time to digest the Word of God, then you'll miss major Impactful things. We pray when we pray, we say, Heavenly Father. We know God to be a Father. But I want you to think about this specific phrase, Everlasting Father, demonstrating a familial term that you belong to me, I belong to you, there's no separation. Father, our Heavenly Father, this undoubtedly communicates His presence and our belonging in it. What royal son can be named the Prince of Peace except for the one who could calm a physical, literal storm and the same one who not only walked on water but can calm the chaos? In each of our lives. Thousands of years later. After he died and left. This is incredible. This is our coming king. The promise of Christmas. Is the promise of his presence. He wants to be with you. If you're here today. And he hasn't yet joined you. He wants to be in you. And all we have to do. Is reach out. We need to take a moment and confess our sins, confront those things, and stand before a holy God just at a place of vulnerability and say, God, I need you. When we do that and we confess our love for Him, then we recognize all of a sudden His presence just fills our life. I've talked to some people who reference the presence of God in their life regularly. And I've I've always found it interesting that they find God in the strangest of places and in the weirdest of circumstances. But it's because they acknowledge that God is with them. He's with you in the car. He's with you at the job. He's with you in the moments of temptation. He's with you with the strife that you face and the chaos that you've endured. He's with you and he wants to remain with you. Amen. Amen. The only thing preventing God's presence in our day-to-day life is us. So I want to challenge you. Two, two different things I want to challenge you today. I'll give an invitation in just a moment for those who are not yet believers to become believers But for the majority of us in the room who are believers, I want to give this two-pronged approach. this, This thought of cleansing our heart, doing some soul searching, and saying, God, I've put something in between you and I. I have. So take a moment, and if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit resides in you. He will help you. You say, Pastor, I don't know what's sin, but I do feel some distance. All you have to do is say, Holy Spirit, reveal to me the area of my life that God's not happy with. You think God would reject that prayer? No. He wants you whole. He wants your spirit healthy. He wants you following after Him. So take that moment today. And say, God, if there's something between you and I, I want to make it right. I want to get to the place where I am experiencing your presence. Secondarily, as a believer, I think that we should make a commitment today. Maybe you say, Pastor, you know what? I did that on the way to church. Jesus and I are good. I'm in his presence today like never before. This is wonderful. If that's you as a believer, awesome. I'm excited that that's your answer. But secondarily, I think we need to commit to him. To say, God, I will do everything in my power to experience your presence in my life. And who knows? God might ask you to do something that's uncomfortable. He he might ask you to speak and you're not a speaker. He might ask you to share and you're not a sharer. He might ask you to get rid of something in your life. Who knows what the Holy Spirit might speak to you, but be open to it. Holy Spirit, I'm overwhelmed at the fact that you are with us. Not only was the Father with the people in the Old Testament at different times, and Jesus came, the only begotten Son, to be with us, but now, Father, you've allowed your Spirit to be with us. Thank you for the promise of your presence, God. Help each one of us today as we commit ourselves to pursue that in Jesus name You are the word in the beginning one with God the Lord most High.